This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Choshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 2019, Germany's coalition government passed its first ever climate law, decreeing that carbon emissions would need to be cut 55% by 2030. But in a shock ruling in April, Germany's most senior judges said that wasn't good enough. The law, they complained, would force radical abstinence on future generations. And traditional road building can be messy, expensive and environmentally unfriendly. So why not knit yourself a road? First up, though. It's been a difficult, not to say desperate, start to the week for Keir Starmer, the leader of the British opposition Labour Party. Well, I'm bitterly disappointed in the results. And, you know, I take full responsibility for the results. And I will take full responsibility for fixing things. Mr Starmer has been hastily reshuffling his shadow cabinet, following election results which have left him and his party seriously weakened. The British midterms, held at the end of last week, included votes for regional parliaments in Scotland and Wales, council seats across England, and elections for city mayors. The most telling result was a Conservative victory in the parliamentary by-election in Hartlepool, a port town in the northeast of England. I do hereby declare that Gillian Wendy Mortimer, commonly known as Jill Mortimer, is duly elected. Congratulations, Bill. North of the border, in Scotland, a victory for nationalists has amplified calls for another independence referendum. This was a pretty seismic mid-term set of elections. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor with The Economist. In England in particular, we saw some fascinating redrawing of the political map emerging, reflect some deeper changes that have been hanging about after Brexit, but the country's been very tested by the pandemic. And this was a kind of political health check in which the Conservatives have deepened the gains that they've been making in Labour heartlands. Labour, the main opposition, commensurately have been losing, particularly in England. What sort of gains are we talking about in those traditional Labour areas? The place I would direct our attention to, first of all, is Hartlepool. It's in the northeast, which is a sprawling area of the map, a long way from London, not very far from Scotland. And it's a, a lot of 
towns and small cities built on coal and steel, big rural stretches in between. And that's the kind of area Labour has held for many decades. In the case of Hartlepool, for instance, out on the coast in Teesside, as it's called there, over 60 years, the last Conservative who won there was a war hero straight after the war. And I think that gives you an impression of how far Boris Johnson has been able to advance into territory that has been held by the Labour Party and by the left or the centre-left for so long. So where does that leave Keir Starmer then, the leader of the Labour Party? This is really bad news for Keir Starmer and for Labour. If you think of this as the midterm health check, well, it hasn't gone very well for the opposition, has it? He's had to undertake a panicky reshuffle of his top team over the weekend. Some of that didn't go very well. He's embroiled in internal rows between the two wings of the party about what isn't working. There's no way to spin this for Labour. It hasn't worked out. So the question is, can he get back in control or is Keir Starmer himself on the skids as the leader of the Labour Party? Presumably, if Mr Starmer wants to get a grip on things, that has to begin with an understanding of why the region flipped in the first place. It's a really interesting question. How much of this is still the backwash of Brexit? It is certainly true that these were areas of the country where the Leave vote was very strong and that Boris Johnson, who had led that campaign for Leave, was in good odour with a lot of those voters. But it can't only be that. We've had, shall we say, a mixed picture on the pandemic, really a very bad start for Boris Johnson, and then rallying with the rollout of the vaccine. But I think it's also more than that. I think it's a structural change in which the Labour Party has not been able to find its balance or to come back from the blows of recent elections. Were there any consolations at all for Labour or indeed other progressive parties? There are some areas of the map nationally and in the regions where Labour has some comfort. It's done pretty well in Wales because it's seen off a rising threat from the Nationalist Party there, from Clyde Cymru. So that's a good thing, but that's also a fairly small number of seats when you top them up if you're looking towards the next general election. And also cities, if you look to cities like Manchester, London, Labour is firm in the saddle there in mayoralties. So it's it's not doing too badly in terms of its urban presence. That is where its heartland voters now are. They're often younger, they're urban, they're highly educated voters, but there aren't enough of them to offset this advance of the Conservatives into the so-called red wall seats of the North and the Midlands. So what does all of this mean then for Boris Johnson and his Conservative Party? Boris Johnson is very keen to present himself as a one-nation Conservative, that idea of a leader who brings the country together. Uh, I think that it's a, it's a mandate for us to continue to, to deliver, uh, for, not just for the people of Hartlepool, not just for the people of the, of the North East, but across the whole of the, of the country. That's a bit of a change for him. He's been seen as quite a divisive figure. So here he's making his pitch that he has a mandate that goes a lot broader. And yet some of the gloss for Mr Johnson has come off because of events in Scotland, hasn't it? 
Yes, there's a Scottish fly in the ointment. You're absolutely right about that. Conservatives and Labour, the two main parties at Westminster, both struggling in Scotland against the Scottish nationalists called the SNP, who dominate Scottish politics and they continue to do so. Now, for their leader, Nicola Sturgeon, she was after an overall majority for her party to push on with her hopes for another referendum on Scottish independence. That's difficult territory for the government at Westminster. They don't want to give her that. But at the same time, she's around the 50% mark of people who would appear to want it because they voted for Scottish nationalists. So it doesn't end that pressure and it doesn't end that argument. But at least for the most part, Mr Johnson's grip is much tighter now. Is that going to last? This certainly sets Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party very fair for a good result as we go towards the next general election in around 2024, though politics is, of course, very changeable. He needs to push through his own vision after the pandemic. So he wants to level up the country, as he puts it. That means bring those parts of it that feel left behind economically and socially more into the mainstream That will be quite a challenge to deliver for those northern seats. He also wants a major house-building programme. A lot of that has been promised before. Can he deliver on that faster than his predecessors? But the field of play is now largely his to control. He just has to decide what he really wants to do with it. Anne, thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Ashang. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Climate change activists often make a splash with dramatic protests to get their message across. Extinction Rebellion blocked bridges and roads in London and chained themselves to the gates of Parliament in Paris. What do we want? Climate justice! When do we want it? Now! In America, the Sunrise Movement staged a protest outside Senator Chuck Schumer's office. Clear eyes! Full hearts! Green jobs! Can't lose! Clear eyes! But some activists are turning to the courts to effect change. In Germany, a group of young people sued the government over its climate policies. And they won. In a ruling issued at the end of last month, Germany's constitutional court said the country's climate policies were, in part, incompatible with basic rights. German Chancellor Angela Merkel declared last week that her country's constitution says you can't just have freedom for those living today, but must also think about the freedom of future generations. That ruling has already caused a radical rethink of Germany's own climate policy, but its implications could be felt far more widely. So the judgment issued by the German Constitutional Court on April the 29th came as a shock to everyone, really. 
Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. A whole bunch of plaintiffs had brought a complaint to the court over a law passed by the federal government at the end of 2019, it's Germany's first ever climate change law, saying that their fundamental rights had been infringed essentially because the law was not ambitious enough. And the court did not agree with all of their complaints, but it did in one very specific respect. It came up with a novel concept of intergenerational justice and said that, in essence, the emission reduction targets that were in the law were too backloaded in the sense that too much of the burden was being shifted too far into the future. And that, in the words of the ruling, would force younger generations to, quote, engage in radical abstinence, the idea being that so much emissions reduction would have to be done in the years after 2030, that it would infringe the freedom, that it would infringe the fundamental rights of the plaintiffs, many of whom were very young. Tom, how did the court justify that ruling? The court activated this clause that was inserted into Germany's constitution back in the 90s. It's a very short thing that talks about the protection of nature. Because Germany signed the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, basically what the court did was that it discovered in this clause a constitutional obligation for Germany to cut emissions. So that was the legal mechanism by which they were able to say to the government, you're not doing enough. So what do the old targets actually say? So the 2019 law said that Germany must cut greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 by 55% on their 1990 levels. There was an interim target for last year of 40%, which Germany just met thanks to the pandemic. It was on course to miss that. Now, what was slightly confusing about the ruling is that although it said that this was leaving too much of the job to the years after 2030, because like the rest of the European Union, Germany is aiming for net zero greenhouse gas emission by 2050. Although the court said that it was backloading too much of the effort, it didn't specifically instruct the government to change its 2030 target. The only specific instruction it gave the government was to come up with binding targets for the years after 2030 that went beyond the aspiration to get to net zero by 2050. This was a ruling that rebuked the government and a law that it had passed. What was the response to that? How did it go down? Well, this is perhaps the most interesting thing of all, because this specific instruction that the court gave to come up with targets for after 2030, it gave the government until the end of next year, end of 2022, to do that. And Germany has a general election in a few months' time in September. So you might expect, well, they will just leave the next government to get on with that job. But instead, the coalition leapt into action. Not only did they act more quickly than they needed to, they also went way beyond what the court had instructed them to do. Normally, this is a very sort of slow-moving, studious place, but I've never seen German politicians act so quickly. So less than a week after the ruling, the coalition had come up with a new proposal, first of all, for the 2030 target, which it had been 55% reduction on 1990. They're now going to aim for 65% reduction. It's quite a big step up in only 10 years. Not only that, they're going to bring forward the year for net zero from 2050 to 2045. These targets are now some of the most ambitious that you'll find anywhere in the world. Setting targets is easy. Actually implementing them is tougher. So what does Germany have to do to make these a reality? Yeah, I mean, that's now the big question, because when the ruling parties were putting together law in 2019, 
Um, this is a really, really difficult negotiation over all sorts of things. And now they're going to have to renegotiate some of those all over again and in the teeth of an election campaign. I think some of the things to look at, there was a very difficult compromise worked out a couple of years ago under which Germany has agreed to phase out its coal-fired power stations by 2038. That's much later than most industrialised countries. Most activists I've spoken to have said that there's no way that that's not going to be brought forward now. Another thing is a carbon price that was introduced at the start of this year on heating and on transport. It's quite low. It's 25 euros a tonne at the moment. It's scheduled to rise in the next few years anyway. Most people think that that rise is now going to have to be accelerated. Then you have a whole host of other things, e-mobility and electric car infrastructure, things surrounding agriculture, a whole host of things. You mentioned the looming election in Germany, Tom. How does this issue play into that campaign? Yes, I think that helps explain why it is that the politicians were so quick to react to the ruling. We're heading into an election campaign. Of course, Angela Merkel will be stepping down after this election. And perhaps the most interesting feature of the political landscape now is the success of the Green Party, currently in opposition, but it's now crept ahead of Angela Merkel's Conservatives. It has a narrow polling lead. For some time now, German voters have told pollsters that climate is one of the issues that they care most passionately about. And so clearly, I think that both Angela Merkel's Conservatives and their coalition partner, the Social Democrats, they realised that they had to act extremely quickly on this to, in essence, remove a talking point for the Greens. By acting so quickly, the governing parties have reduced or at least made that talking point a little bit less potent than it would otherwise have been. This was just a German court decision. Is it going to have ripples in any other countries as well? Absolutely. Talk to people who are specialists in climate litigation and they're super excited about this ruling. Because this is a relatively new field, activists and young people, children or whoever, using the laws that governments have been writing as a way to get them to live up to their own commitments. And that means that not only are litigants watching each other around the world to see what sort of tactics work, but the judges themselves are also paying attention to what their colleagues in other countries are doing as well. Now, obviously, every case will have its own specificities, but because this ruling was actually quite broad, not in its instruction to the government, but in the kind of the legal reasoning that it rested on, and in particular this concept of intergenerational justice, I think you can absolutely expect to see cases elsewhere in the world pay very close attention to this and maybe even start to apply a similar sort of reasoning in their own cases. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks, Shasha. Since the Romans began doing it more than 2,000 years ago, road building has been something of a sweaty and grubby business. Making modern roads is costly and environmentally unfriendly. Asphalt and concrete are both unsustainable materials. But now, researchers may have found a low-tech solution, and it involves knitting. When you think of knitting, the image that comes to your mind is usually a somewhat older person sitting in their slippers in front of the television screen, making a sweater. Paul Markilly is The Economist's innovation editor. But actually, you could knit with stones and string and make roads instead. OK, that sounds ingenious. How does that work, Paul? Tell us about the nitty-gritty. A team of researchers in Switzerland have developed a prototype system that could be the start of a much greener way of building roads. 
You start off with a robotic arm and that lays out string in a series of elaborate patterns. And these are kind of geometric shapes. Very, very uh, interesting. Look a bit like three-dimensional spider webs. And inside these, as they take shape, the layers of stone are added and those stones are tamped down and the string entangles them and keeps them in place. And the odd thing is surprisingly strong and stable. And in one experiment, a whole section of pavement was put together Together this way, and it withstood a load of half a ton, and the stones barely moved at all. Okay, so it's robust. In what way is it greener than a traditional way of making a road? In the way you make a road at the moment, you start off with different grades of sand, gravel, and stones, and you pile them on top of each other until you've got a firm foundation, and then you seal it, and that's done usually with concrete or asphalt. Neither are very green. Both use stones, and the Concrete is made from cement, and making cement produces huge amounts of carbon dioxide. Bitumen, which is a sticky tar-like substance, that's used to make asphalt, and bitumen is obtained from oil. Now, stones and string are obviously much more easily recyclable. The string, the researchers in this case used uh, recycled polyester, which of course can be recycled again. It has to withstand, obviously, rot in the ground. But they are looking at sort of biological alternatives. Okay, so it's strong, it's sustainable. Are there any other advantages to building roads in this way? Well, it's possibly a lot cheaper, apart from the energy costs of uh, making uh, cement and bitumen. These materials are readily at hand, but there's some other gains as well. Concrete and asphalt surfaces are hugely impervious to water, and they're shaped so that rainwater flows off them and into gutters and off it goes. That's what usually happens or is what's supposed to happen. But if water gets caught in the cracks in the surfaces, it can cause potholes, especially when it's freezing and the water opens up the cracks as it expands. Binding stones together with string could create a permeable road so water would soak through it. And this could result in fewer potholes. And also the fact that water could reach the subsoil below, that might reduce the impact that we're having on the land by covering so much of it with roads and concrete. And that would improve local hydrology. I'm completely sold. Can I drive on one of these next week or next month? Unfortunately not. You might be able to jump on one in a laboratory in Switzerland, but uh, they've got some way to go with this. I mean, for a start, they're trying to work out what are the best kind of patterns to use to hold the stones together. And they'll also need to test them, especially test the rolling pressure that a vehicle will produce on the road. So some way to go, but it's just like knitting a cardigan. Success is going to depend on having the good pattern to begin with. Paul, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? 
Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.